You're listening to the Two Degrees Podcast, a podcast dedicated to having constructive and positive discussions around climate change and climate-related policy. Two Degrees is a project of the New York Youth Climate Leaders. The opinions and perspectives discussed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the New York Youth Climate Leaders. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Two Degrees. I'm your co-host, Bridget. And I'm your other co-host, Radesh. For this episode, we have some really exciting news to announce. Just last week, New York State Comptroller Thomas DiNapoli announced that he has divested from 22 coal companies after years of activist pressure from a variety of different groups from across the state. This is a huge win for our divestment campaign. And to talk about this win, along with the broader Divest NY campaign, we, today we have on Mark Dunlay and Jordan Dale of the Divest New York Coalition. So could you guys introduce yourselves? Sure, I'm Jordan Dale. I'm with the Divest New York Coalition, and I'm also with uh, a local 350 group, uh, 350 New Jersey, Rockland. And this is Mark Dunlay. Um, I started off six years ago with uh, 350 uh, NYC when we first launched the campaign, both at the city and state level to divest. Uh, I, I now um, live in the Capital District and I work with PAUSE, People of Albany United for Safe Energy, the local 350 affiliate, as well as the Green Education and Legal Fund. Okay, so the first question we wanted to ask you was just how did you get involved with climate and environmental activism in the first place? Um, if you want to go Jordan first and then Mark can go. I retired after a 30 year career in September of 2016 and uh, had my vision for a long, uninterrupted and peaceful time interrupted by the Trump election shortly thereafter. And uh, I did a lot of soul searching uh, and uh, trying to figure out how I could respond to this event uh, and what I could do that would be the most impactful. And I decided that climate change was the most important issue to me. So I got hooked into uh, the climate change movement and uh, was uh, attracted by the divestment campaign uh, because I recognized the power of the symbolism that it had uh, to impact uh, the world's view about fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry, uh, and to do something as powerful as uh, the apartheid, anti-apartheid uh, divestment movement did uh, many years ago. And uh, this is Mark. So I was a college freshman at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. And somebody from Ralph Nader's office came in and talked about starting a new student group, NYPIRG, New York Public Interest Research Group, uh, to deal with environmental and consumer issues. And so I became active with that and basically spent my entire um, career on sort of public interest issues, did a lot of work uh, with the Green Party and other environmental groups. But my day job for 30 years, 35 years, was running anti-poverty organizations. Um, but about seven years ago, I realized that we were losing the fight against climate change. And I thought, that a lot of the skills that I had learned uh, as an anti-poverty organizer uh, could help with the climate movement. 
Um, so I hooked up in New York City with uh, 350.org and became active with them. Fantastic. It's always really, really interesting to hear how not only adults, but youth have get into involved in like the climate movement. Every story is really unique and it's always really interesting to hear that. Um, and just moving on, um, can you guys describe what divestment is? Divestment is when uh, a large financial portfolio gets rid of all of its holdings in a particular area. So uh, we are advocating for divestment from the fossil fuel industry. This would involve selling all stock uh, and bonds uh, and other securities that, uh, uh, that are part of ownership of the fossil fuel industry. So how does divestment from fossil fuel stocks help um, to address the climate crisis? And how is this an effective tool for the climate movement? Well, I, I think it helps in a number of ways. Um, you know, about six years ago, 350.org, which at that point was sort of the largest um, climate advocacy group in the world, actually, it's been started by a bunch of students in Middlebury College along with um, uh, Bill, Bill McKibben was looking for a way to get a lot of community people engaged. And they did look at the apartheid uh, effort in South Africa uh, in which divestment was a key role. And they decided particularly to go after uh, divestment on college campuses and in churches because there were churches or, or synagogues or mosques and colleges all over the country. And so it provided a, a quick way for people um, to, to organize locally. And in about three weeks, suddenly there were about over 190 uh, divestment campaigns taking place in the United States uh, and worldwide. So it really was an organizing tactic. And, you know, 350s, as we said, their main focus is to organize people to create the political will to demand action on, on climate change. But, you know, at, at another level, it was about really trying to strike on the point that fossil fuel companies were destroying or threatening uh, life on the planet and that it was immoral for anybody to seek to profit from investing in companies that, you know, were driving um, climate change. And then also, as we ostracized the fossil fuel companies, it would make it harder for them to raise uh, capital and financing for their projects. And that would hopefully, uh, you know, slow down, um, you know, the expansion of, of, of fossil fuels. And then as we got into the campaign, we also began to realize that, in fact, fossil fuels were increasingly the worst possible investment. Uh, that anybody could make. For the last five years, fossil fuels have been the worst performing part of the, you know, Wall Street, which is completely different from been the case for the last 45 years, where they had a very stable dividend and were very wealthy and influential. Um, so you're trying to drive money out of the fossil fuel industry, but you're also really trying to educate people that it's fossil fuel companies that are um, killing life on the planet and we, we need to stop propping them up, like unfortunately our state pension fund is doing. So could you go more into why fossil fuels have become like such a dangerous thing to invest in? 
in the past years? Sure. Uh, so the entire world is increasingly committed to transitioning from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Uh, when you burn fossil fuels, they put emissions into the atmosphere. Uh, those emissions, uh, emissions uh, to make a long story short, trap heat. It causes global warming. Global warming is having all kinds of horrendous impacts on the planet. Um, so we want to stop using fossil fuels uh, and we want to use renewables. Uh, and that means that the value of fossil fuel holdings is going to decrease. You, know, you don't have to be a master's of economics. It's basic supply and demand. The world is going to stop buying fossil fuels. Uh, it's not going to stop tomorrow but it's certainly going to have to stop in the next five or 10 or 15 years uh, if we wanna survive. So it makes no sense at all to stay inv invested in this industry, uh, which is collapsing and financial experts uh, increasingly agree with this. Uh, at this point, at best, fossil fuels is a very risky investment uh, with a very small uh, likelihood of return. Uh, and when you invest, you want the opposite. You want investments that are not risky, that have a high likelihood of return. Yeah, definitely. And just, just, just this during the pandemic, I think um, all of you guys saw that the price of oil per barrel, barrel actually dipped below um, zero dollars a barrel. That actually went into the negative, which I think was the first time ever in the history of tracking you know, the price of oil per barrel. Um, and just adding on to that, um, have, have you guys seen any recent trends when it comes to the performance of um, fossil fuel stocks um, in relation to, you know, the Common Retirement Fund, but also internationally? And I know, I think Mark mentioned that. So I was wondering if Mark, you wanted to add on anything to that? Well, as, as I mentioned, the fossil fuel industry, the stocks have been, for the last five years, the worst performing, uh, you know, part of, of, of Wall Street. And, you know, New York State, for instance, has a billion dollars or had a billion dollars uh, invested in Exxon. Just in 2019, that investment was $500 million um, worth of value. And that was before the collapse of oil prices and uh, the, the sort of the collapse of the fossil fuel industry. And in fact, a couple of years ago, a group in... Um, an investment firm in Canada called Corporate Knights um, said, what would have happened when, when Tom DiNapoli first got appointed as controller 10 years ago, he had divested from fossil fuels and just, you know, redistributed the money among the other existing investments in the pension fund. Well, you know, they found that the uh, state pension fund would have an extra, um, you know, $22 billion. So, I mean, really, this has been a, a big loss of, of money. Um, it's actually mainly for the taxpayers. People talk a lot about, yes, of course, we want to protect pensions for retired workers. And my wife is a retired worker, so we do get, you know, pension payments. But actually, under the New York State Constitution, uh, we're the only state in the country that guarantees that uh, public pensions are treated as a contractual obligation. So it's actually the taxpayers who are at risk from all this money that Tom DiNapoli and the, and the uh, state pension fund has been losing. It's it's not the, the pension funds or the unions. 
Um, so yeah, with that kind of segueing, um, I know that you know the Divest New York Coalition has been advocating for um, the Fossil Fuel Divestment Act or the FFDA. Um, but what, what does it specifically do in terms of the divestment and um, in terms of the timeline? Um, I was wondering if you guys could expand on that. Um, sure. Um, it, it, you know, it has been changing over time, uh, over the six years we've had the bill in. But the general idea was that it would divest uh, initially from the 200 largest um, fossil fuel companies, coal, oil, and gas, uh, within five years. But uh, with coal, who is particularly problematic in terms of its loss in value, that it would uh, divest uh, within a year. Um, last year, probably because of some of the comments uh, that came in at the hearings that the state Senate held on the bill, and also because of some of the findings from the um, decarbonization panel that the state controller and the governor had set up to examine the climate risks posed by the pension fund, it was actually expanded to, to a broader category of um, fossil fuels. But it basically does give the controller uh, a five-year uh, timeline. And, you know, it does say that if the controller really has evidence that, you know, divestment is hurting the pension fund and it's losing a lot of money, um, that um, he can stop divestment. Not that we're losing a lot of money um, from the pension fund, because we are losing a lot of money already, and we will continue to lose money. So it's, it's not if we lose money, but if we're losing money because the act of divestment is somehow causing uh, the value to go down. Right. So um, if we were to divest from the common retirement fund, can you talk about the financial impacts that would have along with the climate impacts, of course. And um, Jordan, you can answer this one. So uh, if we were to divest the common retirement fund from fossil fuels, it would reduce the exposure of the fund considerably uh, from the economic damage that we expect from climate change because the fossil fuel industry uh, is going to suffer the most. It will not eliminate it because uh, climate change is going to have costs uh, across the economic spectrum and uh, non-fossil fuel companies like the banks that uh, support them uh, and the other elements in their supply chain uh, are all going to be impacted, uh, as will many, many businesses. Uh, but divestment will help. Uh, it, the, the, the fund will be, would have been better off if it had divested, as Mark said, 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago, uh, and it will be better off going forward if we divest. You know, one thing I would point out, people sometimes ask, well, if you're going to invest and it's, you know, somewhere around $12, 13000000000 billion, how do you decide where to put the money? Well, one of the things we've, we've learned from the divestment campaign is in fact, these big pension funds don't really make real investment decisions. Um, they've decided that um, basically Wall Street, the market beats um, investors, even hedge fund operators. So largely what they do is they put the money uh, into index funds. So for instance, if say Exxon 
represents 1% of the value of the stock exchange, then you put 1% of the pension fund into Exxon. Um, so in, in terms of redistributing it is relatively simple thing to do. But I also always tell the story when um, this woman who actually was head of the Climate Advisory Council first came to New York from Massachusetts a couple of years ago to take over a state agency called NYSERDA. We had the discussion about um, sort of the value of public ownership as a way to increase support for renewable energy. Uh, and then one of the things she pointed out, she asked me, did I know that in Europe, it was actually the public pension funds which have really driven the development of offshore wind. They're the ones who put the money into offshore wind, which is why Europe is so much further ahead. And in fact, you know, offshore wind has been a very profitable investment. And I said, that was a great idea. Let's, let's call up Tom DiNapoli and convince him. So there's a lot of ways that we can put the money in. We are just focused on divestment. We, we did in New York City, and we have managed to get New York City to the best. You know, we did began to talk about um, how to reinvest the money, but the politicians started to ask so many questions. We said, let's just stop talking about reinvestment because it's too complicated for you guys to handle. Let's just agree to do divest. And then, as we say, we give you a five-year timeline to divest. That gives you five years to figure out the reinvestment. And then we can begin to talk about, you know, do you put more money into, say, affordable housing, into renewable energy? There are lots of ways we can reinvest the money. So a question I just thought of was, um, I know some people are against divestment because they think that shareholder advocacy would be more of a um, effect, maybe effective or less um, confrontational, I guess, maybe. Um, and I was wondering what you would say about why divestment is better over shareholder ag advocacy. So shareholder advocacy uh, means that large shareholders like the uh, retirement fund uh, use the power of their shares to try to influence the companies that they own uh, so that they might go to Exxon and say, we want you to adopt this climate friendly policy. Uh, and in theory, it, it could conceivably be impactful. The, the problem is that in reality, it has not been. The fossil fuel industry and Exxon is probably the biggest offender in this regard, uh, have uh, blocked any action uh, uh, against them uh, to be responsible to the planet uh, because they don't want to hurt their profits. Uh, and they have uh, used their considerable political influence, as well as invested millions of dollars in disinformation campaigns to slow the climate movement down uh, so that they can squeeze every last dollar uh, out of their uh, fossil fuel inventory. Uh, the uh, efforts by the Common Retirement Fund and other uh, large shareholders to influence companies through shareholder action have produced essentially nothing. There was a big celebration when they uh, finally passed a resolution requiring that Exxon produce a report uh, on uh, the impact of climate change on its business operations. And uh, when Exxon finally produced the report, uh, everyone agreed that it was uh, 
woefully inadequate. Uh, the way I like to put it is that shareholder action moves glacially slowly at a time when urgent progress is needed. I would also add that one of the things we learned from the campaign is that um, basically it's in violation of federal uh, security rules for a shareholder's resolution to actually address the core function of the company. So you can argue, as Tom DiNapoli rightfully did, that Exxon should adopt um, a resolution to stop discriminating against gays, which was overwhelmingly defeated, as basically they all have over 50 years. But you cannot um, pass a resolution that says that uh, Exxon should stop investing in finding more oil and should invest in renewables. You cannot use shareholder resolutions to actually address the core function of the business. Right, that makes sense. So Jordan, um, we were wondering how long has the campaign to divest New York been going on? It's been going on longer than I've been involved. Mark, you've been involved longer. How, how, do you have a sense? Yes, we started it about uh, you know six years ago. It happened to be that a lot of the campaign was focused on various universities and religious institutions. But I, because I had worked for 35 plus years uh, with an anti-poverty organization, I knew the state legislature pretty well. So I said, well, why don't we try to get the uh, city and state pension funds to divest? We did get the city pension fund and we're still working on the state pension fund. And, you know, you mentioned the city and obviously, you know, New York City announced its divestment in 2018. Um, so what were some of the tactics used for not only that campaign, but also for the current campaign as well? Well, I, I, you know, we certainly try to do a lot of um, protests with it. With New York City was different. And at the state level, we have a sole trustee, which means that Tom DiNapoli as a state controller gets to make all decisions. In New York City, they actually have five different funds, and each of the funds tends to have three politicians on it, the mayor, the controller, and the public advocate, plus a bunch of um, labor representatives. So there really were 15 people that had uh, a vote. So we really went uh, after each one of them, and that was uh, quite helpful. We did a lot of rallies out in front of the uh, city controller's office, uh, the mayor's office, uh, certainly the 400,000 people that showed up um, for the big um, People's Climate March gave us a lot of impetus. Uh, pope Francis, who had been quite outspoken um, when he became pope about the need to take climate action, that helped as well. We, we did try to really get the city council to weigh in. Um, to be honest, that was not as productive uh, as we thought we would. Uh, we were lucky in that DC 37, the biggest uh, municipal union uh, in the city uh, was supportive of um, uh, climate change. John Forster, one of their uh, union um, officials um, was quite helpful. And in fact, you know, they did a briefing um, for the workers uh, at the um, DC 37 headquarters in New York City. So having union support uh, in New York City was quite helpful. And then uh, Tish Jaynes, now Attorney General, at that point public advocate, she held a public hearing on it 
uh, and that was quite helpful. And I think the other big thing was uh, New York Communities of Change, used to be known as ACORN, but a low-income community group. They came out on divestment, and they carried a lot of weight with some of the labor unions. And once they got involved with the campaign, after about four years or so, suddenly when these big rallies were taking place in New York City around climate or other issues, divestment became part of the demands, and that really sort of helped uh, increase his visibility. Great. So um, in this campaign, what have been the major stumbling blocks? Um, Jordan, would you like to answer? Well, uh, one of the stumbling blocks is that we would like to have more support from organized labor, uh, particularly the state workers' uh, uh, unions. Uh, there seems to be um, a dynamic with them where they don't, they're very loyal to Tom DiNapoli. Tom DiNapoli is sole trustee, uh, has been good to them. They see him as representing their interests uh, and probably rightfully so uh, in most cases. But that loyalty uh, has resulted in them not even wanting to look at or listen to or consider uh, the reasons why failing to divest is hurting uh, the pension fund. So their support for Tom DiNapoli, in our opinion, is not in their best self-interest. We don't think the rank and file really care, but they should. Uh, but leadership remains loyal, mostly loyal to Tom DiNapoli. There have been some exceptions uh, in Albany and Troy. We've had labor unions that have passed resolutions in support of divestment. The nurses union has uh, come out in favor of divestment. Uh, but uh, the unions uh, are powerful, and uh, so far they have not uh, uh, come to realize that divestment would be, in fact, in their self-interest. One other thing I would add is that Tom DiNapoli, very unusual, was actually appointed as a controller initially, not elected. He has been elected since then, um, but the uh, prior controller, Alan Hevesy was forced to resign immediately after he got reelected due to some political scandal. And it was the legislature who uh, got to appoint his replacement. And they fought very hard against most of the media, like the New York Times and uh, Elliot Spitzer, the newly elected governor, who wanted to put a professional uh, who understood finance in as controller. And the legislature agreed to put Tom DiNapoli, one of their own members in uh, as state controller. And that was very controversial. And, you know, therefore the legislature, more so than with other controllers, have gone out of their way to try to protect Tom because he's basically he's one of them and they're the ones that made the decision to, you know, initially uh, elect him. And we knew that was going to be a stumbling block, but we thought if we could get say 50 legislators to, to become sponsors of the divestment bill, that that would be enough to convince Tom DiNapoli, who actually you know, has a reputation of being a fairly good environmentalist to agree to divest. And that unfortunately is proven incorrect. We're almost at 100 legislators. And if anything, Tom DiNapoli is getting more stubborn on this issue and just really is not paying attention both to the reality of climate change becoming worse but also the reality of 
the finances for fossil fuel investments becoming worse. So, uh, Mark, on that note, um, what has been kind of the major reasons that, um, you know, the comptroller has listed supporting his current stance on opposing divestment? Well, really, publicly, it's been on shareholder engagement, uh, which, you know, Jordan, you know, and I mentioned previously has not worked at all over the last um, 50 years. You know, he does cite the fact that, you know, he's taken some of his own steps uh, on, on climate. His pension fund's about $210 billion. So I think he's allocated about maybe $10 billion of that to what he calls a low-carbon investment. And, and, you know, and that's good. And we say, well, great, you only have $200 billion, you know, more to go. Um, and after this decarbonization panel came out with a number of recommendations about how to reduce climate risk, which we think very much was in sync with the things we've been saying about the divestment campaign. You know, he's developed sort of a climate action plan, but it moves, you know, very, very slowly, very glacially. And, you know, climate change is not moving slowly. And, and you know, and the fact that, you know, in the Arctic this summer, the temperatures hit 100 degrees Fahrenheit. They didn't think that would occur, they being scientists, into 2100. So we are moving 80 years faster than was predicted. And there was just this, um, a study put out by one of the big science offices in uh, Europe, and, and they say we may hit the threshold of 1.5 degrees centigrade warming, which is sort of like the danger point, within five years, not the 2050 goal that the IPCC is, is, is taken. But to be honest, we really do not understand why Tom DiNapoli has continued to ignore the evidence, has continued to ignore climate change, has continued to ignore his fellow legislators, and has refused to divest. So Jordan, what has the comptroller done so far in regards to divestment? Well, actually the comptroller announced uh, about a week ago uh, that uh, he had divested from 22 coal companies. Uh, and this is a positive development. Uh, the comptroller's office has created uh, a protocol for reviewing subsectors of the fossil fuel industry, uh, determining which of them uh, pose a substantial risk to the fund, uh, and getting out of the ones that uh, they need to get out of in order to protect the retirement fund. Uh, if the comptroller were to do this for all of the subsectors of the fossil fuel industry, uh, that would essentially be divestment. Uh, and we've, we've challenged the comptroller to go ahead and do this, to take advantage of the fact that he's created uh, a system for getting it done uh, that uh, has produced uh, a good result uh, and to make a commitment to doing that for the whole fossil fuel industry one subsector at a time according to a timetable. It's a rational way to go. Uh, I think that everybody involved in the divestment movement on both sides would be happy if he would do it. Uh, 
uh, we are waiting for him to take that leadership step. So adding on to that, um, what does him divesting from coal show about our progress as activists? Well, I, I think it shows that he's beginning to feel um, the pressure. Um, I mean, coal is certainly the easiest. It's what we got New York City to divest from three, four years ago. But the time that they divested it lost so much value that, you know, probably they should have been sued for financial uh, mismanagement. But, you know, the, the fact that Tom DiNapoli has been calling up the unions and begging them to lobby the legislature to not, you know, do divestment, I think is a real sign that he's feeling the pressure. And I think the fact that, you, you know, the, the youth climate leaders, students have really picked up this issue over the last six months has really added a new component. Like I mentioned, New York Community Should Change, low-income community group, you know, jumping into the campaign in New York City was quite pivotal. I think the same thing is true with the youth, you know, climate leaders that has added another dimension. And I just think that legislators, you know, when young people are saying, listen, we have no future because of climate change and you have not acted for 30 years and you need to do something to give us a future, you know, they actually hear that. Yeah, definitely. And just kind of adding on to that, um, Mark, you mentioned kind of like the infusion of youth energy into this campaign, but, you know, as you mentioned, you know, it's our future that's on the line that, you know, if we continue to invest in fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry, we're going to increasingly um, live in a world that's more and more uninhabitable. And just kind of um, adding on to that point, um, how do you see divestment as being kind of a key tool for youth activists to kind of cling on um, and advocate for, whether that be on campuses or, you know, in their own communities? Um, or any like fund that they might be related to? Well, uh, you know, I mentioned that 350.org really is the group that started the whole divestment movement. And they really were a student-based group. Um, you know, uh, when I worked in New York City where they used to be based, you know, there was hardly any staff over 30. And if you look at some of the really um, leaders, young leaders in college, um, coming out from, you know, the climate movement, starting the Sunrise groups. Um, many of them got their start by working on the divestment campaign. Uh, you know, it was a, it's a good entryway. It gives you a target at your local college or, um, you know, church or synagogue. You don't need to be asking anybody's permission to do it. And I think people, you know, both learn the issue about climate um, learn the divestment issue, but also learn how to organize. And then as they get a little bit older, you know, they, you know, they branch out and, and, and to the broader, uh, you know, climate agenda. So I think it's really been a great, you know, training ground, um, not just for young people, but it's a good way for people to get involved in the climate movement. And then as they learn more, can take on more complex issues. Great. Um, what, so Jordan, what impact do you think divesting New York could have on the rest of the country and even the world? When we argue for <clears throat> fossil fuel divestment, we usually cite three uh, major reasons. One is the moral reason. We've talked about that. 
Uh, it is just plain wrong to support an industry uh, that is destroying the planet and that will cause uh, human suffering on a scale that is unimaginable. Uh, and we've talked about the financial reason uh, that fossil fuel industry is bleeding money for the uh, retirement fund and that the prospects are that it's just going to get worse. <clears throat> but the third reason is a leadership reason. And uh, I think this could be the most powerful one of all. Uh, if New York State were to announce divestment, it would raise climate consciousness uh, among millions of New Yorkers, millions of people across the country, and millions of people throughout the world. And it would be an example that other states, uh, other localities, and other institutions could follow. You know, symbols count. Every once in a while, uh, when we are lobbying for the Fossil Fuel Divestment Act, we run across a legislator who says, oh, this is just symbolic. Just symbolic? Symbols are hugely important. Uh, the, the American flag is a symbol uh, that has inspired generations uh, of Americans. Uh, and fossil fuel divestment is also a symbol that could make a huge difference in the fight against climate change. Thank you so much to Jordan and Mark for talking with us. Um, I learned a lot and it means a lot that you would take the time to do this. Our producers are Anna Sarah Saletti, Natalie Penna, and Sophie Campbell. The music is by Francis Bach. Once again, our guests are Jordan Dale and Mark Dunley. Thank you so much for listening and you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at NY2CL and Twitter at NYYouthClimate. Visit our website at ny2cl.org. <laughs>